Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thirst for the gift that you would give to us this morning. In truth, Lord, we are parched and the ground is dry apart from the waters of your spirit. And so, Lord, we bring to you our hearts. We ask that you would soften them, that you would make them good soil, productive of good fruit, to the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we have been following in the news, one of our dear friends, Bishop Ben Kawashi, is the Bishop of Jas in Nigeria. And that's around the, the middle part to the slight north of Nigeria. And Jas has been um, subject to a lot of radical Islamic terror on the part of some radicalized Fulani herdsmen. Christians there are primarily farmers, and then a lot of the Fulani herdsmen are, um, uh, well, they're herdsmen. And um, the Christians there are suffering. And the numbers for the last year, I think, are 6,000. 6,000 Christians have died as a result of being Christians, um, subject to this kind of radical Islamic terror. So I, I look at that, and um, I think that that would be incredibly awful, terrifying, um, possibly faith-shaking experience if I were in the midst of that. I imagine most of us would feel that way. We don't experience that kind of threat over here. We have other things that we get worried about, but that's not one of them. So I had a chance to just see a really brief clip of Bishop Ben giving um, a sermon. I didn't watch the entire thing, but what I noticed is what I always notice about Bishop Ben, which was there was such a, a force of life in him. It was like nothing about what had happened and it's happened to him several times. He's, he's been beaten, and he was at gunpoint, almost shot. His wife was beaten near to death and, and um, blinded until surgery resulted in healing. So he's been through it again and again, and yet continues to be shining with this kind of otherworldly confidence. He's got his confidence rooted in something other than what just happened in the last months or year um, at the result, as a result of this terror. He's rooted in a different kind of strength than I am. I want that. I think in many ways what John's gospel is trying to afford to the Christians of his day is an impartation of strength that probably looks a lot like what I am describing Bishop Ben. And Bishop Ben just says, we are not changing what we have been doing. We are going to continue to preach the gospel. Which is a gospel of love. And it's radical. I mean, he does talk about things like turning the other cheek, but bringing the good news into territories where there is a chance that you could actually be killed. Because they so believe in the reality of the gospel and the fact that no matter what happens here on earth, God has got us. He's got us covered. And it's real. It's life that nobody, nobody can take away. We um, hosted some of Bishop Ben's 
um, priests and um, deans and canons, all these, you know, Anglican terms for different kinds of leaders that are under bishops a couple of years ago. And they were challenging us. They were saying, you know, you, you are afraid, and I know you've heard me say this before, you guys are afraid of standing in the midst of the culture wars, for instance, like some things about what Christians stand for these days um, are actually not too welcome in our cu- cultural context. Um, you know, things like the idea that we would be called to holiness in our sexuality, right? And that's just not where the culture's at at this point. Um, and they, they, were, they were just challenging us. They were saying, you know, when we make a decision for Jesus and when we call other people to make a decision for Jesus, it, it does often mean our lives are on the line. And so please stand, because it's hard on us when you don't. And um, Venerable Mark is one of the guys that was speaking to me, and I felt like, man, you've got a special authority. You have every right to speak to me in this way. <laughs> because Venerable Mark had actually planted uh, churches right in the middle of like a Boko Haram territory environment. So he'd actually put his money where his mouth was. He'd done it. And um, sometimes we in our little church experience, we kind of feel like, oh Lord, it's like an uphill battle. You know, we have like two steps forward and one step back. And then we start to feel like, oh man, we're a little bit weak. And then what do we really have to offer? And then we start to maybe even think, oh man, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm failing in some way, right? And our, all of our leaders at times have gone through that kind of doubt about ourselves. And plus we know that we're, um, yeah, we're not perfect. We're far from it. We have our own culpabilities that, that actually create a sense of, of, of weakness too. And in the midst of all of that, Venerable Mark is being very sensitive, very compassionate. And he's, and he's basically saying, you don't pay, you, you got to pay attention to those other things. <laughs> you need to lay claim to what God is going to do and claim it now. You need to live into what is to come. You know, you need to live into that now. See the light of that and let that suffuse your vision and your confidence. So claim what God wants to do. Put a stake in the ground now and lay claim to it and live from that reality. And he, he had a, a little bit of a prophetic word that we're still trying to figure out because it's not clear what, exactly what it means. He said, you will become a sanctuary in the midst of a troubled time. You will become a sanctuary and people will know about you and they will come to you and many different people will come and it, they will come to you after the big thing. The big thing. <laughs> That was an interesting expression. I have no idea what that means. But you do sometimes feel like, oh, there's portentous signs, you know, and so maybe there is some big thing that's going to happen. But I do see the early signs that were called to be a sanctuary. And I think the fullness of that concept of sanctuary is not just a place of safety, but it's a place of life. It's a place where things grow. It's a place where people are not only healed, they begin to thrive and they begin to bear fruit. So I want to um, explore a little bit about how I think John is actually conveying the same kind of message to the early church. The early church at the time that he's writing is, um, they're experiencing lots of persecution. In fact, it's even gotten worse. Most likely this is right around the time where, where Nero has burned Rome and he's blamed the Christians for it. And there's all sorts of lies being said about them. And most of the apostles at this point have been martyred. 
And John might be the last one standing at this point as an apostle, and he's probably very old. And the church would naturally feel kind of flimsy. And probably many of them would feel like, I I don't even know if I've stood well for the Lord. I've seen the apostles go before us, and they were martyrs, but I'm not sure. I'm feeling a little bit wavery in the midst of the external pressure, but maybe even more so, I'm upset with my internal weakness and lack of courage. And so I think John is is really speaking into that, and he's had many years to meditate on his gospel, and he knows what he's got to do. He's got to impart to the church in that place of weakness and oppression some kind of strength so they can actually stand in the midst of their day, and they can actually bear fruit. One of the great things about John is that he's also appealing to his Jewish brethren who, at this point, are also part of the problem. So many of the Christians, most of whom were Jews, were being expelled from their synagogues. That meant that their own culture basically was rejecting them. And I think in some ways, you know, sometimes I think we as a church can feel that too. There's something going on in our culture right now where at one point, things like our underlying Jewish and Christian values were still somewhat permissible in the context of the culture. And now seems like we don't even get a seat at the table anymore. It's just kind of dismissed and even suspected. I mean, the church has certainly failed in terms of how its leaders have represented the gospel, but you kind of feel that rejection. It's like, where do we belong in the midst of this? And I think that's part of what he's saying too. Where do you belong? And where do you root yourself in strength? the, um, the great thing about John is I think he understands deeply how Jesus fulfills all the promises of the coming Messiah. He fulfills all the promises of what the kingdom of God is going to be like in ways that blow the mind when you really appreciate them. And they fill the heart with strength when you really get it. So this morning's gospel, we just picked a really small snippet from it. But it's one of the main ways I think that John is saying, folks, this is the whole purpose of my gospel. I'm telling you, in the midst of the challenges, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll be able to trust Jesus again and so that you'll be able to really trust his words, like rely upon his words. Everything he's saying, they're really reliable. They're strong. They're like a rock. You can stand on them. And they're not just a rock. Actually, they're a rock that springs forth with water. And that's the concept of the Feast of the Tabernacles. In the days of the Israelite, it was a prescribed feast. It was one of the three feasts where Jewish people, no matter where they were, they were called to come back and worship in Jerusalem at the temple. And this is part of the fall festivals. So it's, um, it's kind of interesting. You've got the beginning of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and then you've got these days of repentance that amount to about 40, and then you've got the Day of Atonement, which is the one day of the year where all of the sins are cleansed, and then the the priest's own sins are cleansed, and then he can go into the Holy of Holies and actually pronounce the name of God. That means that he, as the high priest for the nation of Israel, has the ability to be in the presence of the Lord in a powerful and personal way because sins have been forgiven and people have been released. 
And then six days after that, well, it's five days, and then the sixth day after that comes the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a harvest festival, but it's also something very interesting that I think speaks to us in the midst of our own fear and trembling, or in the, in the midst of what we often feel in our culture, in the midst of what our Nigerian brothers and sisters I know must be feeling. It's, um, it's this idea that they're on the one hand remembering the way that the Lord had preserved them when they were in their own desert wilderness wandering. You guys may or may not remember that the Lord every day provided for their needs. He was engendering in them an, a really incredible dependency um, that they might know that the Lord their God was a God who was going to provide for them. Not only would he provide for them food, which he did through manna, he would also provide wisdom. His presence would hover there in the tabernacle and Moses would meet to him, with him and would minister wisdom to the people of Israel and he would judge and they would make decisions about how and when and where to move and how to conduct the battles in the midst of the confrontations that they had in their day. So he provided wisdom. He gave them water in the middle of the desert from a rock. So every day in the midst of their vulnerability, they were supplied with what they needed. One of the things that um, we might not know about tabernacles is that they're more like tents than they were buildings. I think sometimes we think of the tabernacles as maybe like wooden buildings, but actually they were, they were pretty flimsy. Um, they were very exposed. So when Moses prescribed the Feast of the Tabernacles to have people remember what it was like in the wilderness wandering, he said, here's where you're going to build it. You've got to build it this way because for the, for, the, um, for the seven days of this festival, and it was called the Season of Joy, for the seven days of this festival, you're going to live in a little booth or a little tent, if you will, with walls, but the, the ceiling is going to be comprised of uh, things like palm branches and leafy branches. And what that meant was is that you're exposed somewhat to the elements. I mean, if it rains a little bit, some of that's going to come in, maybe shaded to a good extent. You're shaded from the, the worst of the heat. But you could actually spy the stars in the sky through this leafy covering that would go over these um, these little huts, these little tents. By the way, I'm just going to insert a little something here. Jesus in this part of the gospel, he's decided, we're seeing him at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He starts out teaching at the middle of it, and then by the end he says what we read just a minute ago. But at the beginning of this chapter, it initially says, I'm not going to go down to Tabernacles. It's not my time yet. His brothers are saying, put up or shut up, go down and show that you're the real Messiah. He's saying, this is not my time. But then he comes later in the middle of it. Well, what's, what's um, interesting, some people do a little harmony of the, the other Gospels with John at this point, and they say that, well, Jesus remained with his disciples for the first couple days of the feast, and, um, and perhaps even the very first day, he's up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what do they see? They see the revelation, the divine revelation, the transfiguring revelation of Jesus speaking with Elijah and Moses, and you realize he is the Messiah. He's the one who was promised to come, and he's going to usher in a kingdom where the divine is going to be manifest, and his splendor is going to shine. And, I mean, 
Peter's overcome, and he's thinking, this is it. This is it. Like, this is like what we, we, we think and pray about in, in, um, in all of our anticipations of the Messianic kingdom. And, oh, it's tabernacles. Let's set up a tabernacle. Let's make a couple tents or three tents for each of you guys. So it's not as bad as you think. Um, actually, if you look at the days, Peter had, six days before, confessed Jesus as Lord. So on the very same day that the high priest is in the Holy of Holies saying the I am and meeting with God there, Peter's encountering the truth of who Jesus is in his confession. And then six days later, there's this revelation of who Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's like what, it's what Tabernacles is trying to, throughout the centuries, convey to people who feel flimsy. They're trying to give you a divine vision that's so radiant that it creates a, a desire to live again and a desire to celebrate the reality that the kingdom has come. And that's, that's kind of what's inspired in Peter. He's not just being Peter, which maybe a little bit he is, but people often just kind of make fun of him, like, hey, come on, let's set up some tabernacles. That's not it. I think it's actually probably more like this. He's saying, let's enter into the Feast of the Tabernacles. Let's, let's remember, on the one hand, God is our provider. And then... Also, here's what's really cool about tabernacles, is it became an anticipation of the provision of God and the kingdom to come, the messianic provision. We read about that in our Old Testament passage, where you see this, this outpouring of water from the right shoulder of the temple, and it goes even like under the temple, then it crosses like into the book, the, the brook of Kidron, and then it goes further south, and it basically transforms the Dead Sea from a a very, very salty body, body of water into water that can actually give life. And the, the, the water rises and rises and rises so the deserts are transformed into basically Eden. And that's, that was the anticipation of Israel in tabernacles as they, they began to realize what Moses was doing. Not, they're not just saying, I want to remember how God provided for us in our vulnerability. They're also beginning to pray for and in, in, a, in a hopeful way, in a life-giving way, anticipate that coming kingdom with, with all of its bounty, all of its super abundant bounty coming from these living waters. But also, it wasn't even just that. It began to speak to the symbolic meaning of the living waters, which was the Holy Spirit. And now we see where Jesus is really directly saying, yeah, that's what's happening here. I'm the real fulfillment of the temple. My heart is the holy of holies. My lungs have the Holy Spirit filling them, and I'm going to pour out upon you an eternal blessing that gives birth to the new kingdom and a new creation. That's what's coming through Jesus with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so all of this is kind of anticipated by Israel. And, and John is just, like, all of this stuff that I'm saying to you, maybe you never heard of it before, but it's, it's all woven in to the text. It's, it's like John is saying, there's so many scriptures of hope that are being fulfilled. Guys, you can really hope. I know you feel troubled right now, but I want you to realize that there really is a rock of our salvation. And he's going to sustain you and provide for you. 
And that's what he's remembering during the Feast of Tabernacles as Jesus is showing it's coming true now. And it will be true. So you've got this, they're remembering and they're anticipating and then right now there's a life-giving gift that comes from that. And it's a strengthening gift for the church, especially when she's in trouble. By the way, I want to say that like, if you ever have read Revelation and found it really confusing, one thing that will help you understand it is if you understand the Feast of the Tabernacles and, and the, some of the feasts that pr- directly precede it because that whole book is written in many ways structured around the Feast of Tabernacles because it's a portrayal of the coming kingdom. And that's the Israelite understanding of it. So it makes it, it sheds a lot of light on it and you see that in the Revelation passage that we, we read. You see the fulfillment once again of the Feast of the Tabernacles. A couple other things I just want to share with you about the Feast of the Tabernacles that I think speak to what Jesus is doing. This is the last day of the feast and it's seven days long. Every day is a feast of joy. In the evenings, they would go down to the Pool of Siloam. So that's at the southeastern, um, just southeast of the temple. And they would go down to David's city to what used to be called the, the Spring of Shiloh became the Pool of Siloam. And they would get water from there because the prophecy was that in the days of the Messiah when he came, those waters would flow through the temple and out of the temple. It would be renewed. It was the place where all the messianic kings like David had been anointed too. So it was really associated with messianic blessing and life. And, but in, in a way to pray for that and in a way to celebrate it in a hopeful way, they would take the water from Siloam in a golden pitcher and all the men of Israel would sing the Psalms, the Hillel Psalms. And the, the Hillel Psalms were like, like the Hosanna, right? That we sing in Palm Sunday, which means save us now. Grant us, Lord, success. They're praying out of vulnerability once again. They're, and as they go up Mount Zion and up the path into the temple through the water gate, they're singing all of these psalms. Save us now, Lord. Grant us success in the midst of our trouble. Grant us success and give us strength. And... Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they would come up to the, um, the altar area, and the next morning they would pour out water and they would pour out wine as a sacrificial libation. And it was a symbol of how the Lord had provided water in the desert, and the wine was a symbol of the feast of the kingdom to come. It's a symbol of a cultivated reality, right? Because you can't have wine unless you've got a miracle like Wedding of Cana. You have to actually cultivate it in an Edenic kind of garden-like environment. You have to have that level of peace in order to have that. And so they're offering this this, um, wine and this water in the morning and that would flow out of these channels under the temple and into the brook of Kidron as an anticipation of what was to come. And then the very last day of the feast, they got even more intense about it. They would march seven times around the altar like they did when they conquered Jericho. And they would pray these same Hillel Psalms and they finished with Psalm 118. 
And it's talking about how the Lord's gonna quench their thirst, and how he's gonna take care of them. But Psalm 118 does something even more. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And part of the tragedy that John speaks to and he's really appealing to his Jewish brethren is that they didn't realize that Jesus was the rock of their salvation. They didn't realize that he was the source of these waters of life, these living waters, and that they, they would well up from within the believers all the way up to heaven in all of our vulnerability and all of our mortal fear could be ministered to if we just entrusted ourselves to him. I was in um, the Golgotha Chapel about three weeks ago. It's in the Holy Sepulchre, which I think I mentioned before is a place where you have the, the tomb in which, or the, the cave tomb, um, it's built up into, there's like this edifice, this thing called an edicule, a boxy building on top of it, but it's the old place where probably Joseph of Arimathea's um, grave was and where Jesus' buried had been, uh, body had been buried. But it's also, because it's very close, it's also got the Golgotha Chapel, which is built on top of these stones that were, according to history, and it's pretty well supported by archaeology, Golgotha, the place of the skull where Christ was crucified. From there, if you didn't have any buildings there, you could have seen the back of the Holy of Holies because it's to the west of the Holy of Holies. So from that place where our Lord was crucified, you could have seen that. And then out of that prayer time that I had there, you, you, if you go up to the Golgotha, there's this like altar right over the stone. And the stone is mostly encased in glass, but there's this one spot where you can actually reach down and you can touch it and you can pray. It was a beautiful time of day because it was 5.30 in the morning, so therefore the only people there were people who really loved Jesus. I mean, you have to admit, right, being up at 5.30 in the morning to pray there is, you, you gotta be serious. So I guess I was serious that day and I was, I was praying and I just had an overwhelming sense of the, the gift of the outpouring of Christ's love that was expressed when his heart was pierced. And at the piercing of the lance, out comes blood and water. I, you know, I was aware that John and Mary were there. He actually was beholding that. He, he made a big deal about beholding the Lamb of God. He, he remembered those words from John the Baptist. And he, he remembered when Jesus said, they will look on him whom they have pierced, and then they will know that he is God. And he, rem he remembered that. And I was just overwhelmed by the reality of the blood and the water, just like the libation ceremony being poured out. And I, and, I, and I felt in my own weakness, like as a priest in a small church and a movement that's brand new and it's kind of a baby movement in the context of a world that seems to be arraying itself against the kind of witness of Christianity and in my own struggles internally that make me think I've failed him in many different ways. I just felt like the, the flushing, cleansing, life-giving power that renewed me in the way of life. I think in so many respects what Jesus is saying is I, I want to, I want to bring that kind of life-giving renewal to you in the spirit. I want you to receive that gift that sets you free in strength and sets you free in all kinds of fruitfulness in life. 
And actually, this is what you need in order to deal with the things that you're afraid of. Because in the world, you're going to have trouble. And he doesn't say, I'm going to remove all those troubles. He says, I'm going to be your strength. I'm going to give you a fountain of life which will spring up within you all the way to heaven. And nothing in this world is going to be so daunting that you can't overcome it because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's what he wants to offer. This kind of life-giving, Holy Spirit power that redeems your own faithfulness even, like from your own failures even. I just think about the, the moment that the disciples first received the Spirit in John's Gospel. They're cowering in fear behind shut and locked doors because they're afraid what's happening. And Jesus comes in and he says, peace I give to you. And he breathes peace into them. Why? Because they failed him, and here he was risen, and he breathes peace into them. He's ministering to them the forgiveness that reconciles them to him, and they can be free once again to live life as followers and disciples, apostles of Jesus. And then he says something really cool. He says, I'm going to send you in the same way. The same life-giving kind of a ministry as you forgive others, they are forgiven. If you bind the sins of others, they are bound. He's saying, I want you to minister this kind of gracious, life-giving reality to other people so that they can be set free to have productive and fruitful lives. So that you can anticipate the fullness of the kingdom which is to come. So that you can live in the light of that even now because I'm going to breathe confidence into you. I'm going to breathe, breathe new life into you. It's a beautiful invitation. A revelation reading says, the spirit and the bride say, come, come to the waters. You have to pay for it. You receive them without price, come to the waters. Let him suffuse you with his life-giving waters. Let him renew you in these life-giving waters. These are waters, first of all, of forgiveness, but then they're waters of strengthening. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are realities that are so beautiful. It's beyond really our ability to appreciate it. We're just so grateful, Lord, that you've given us so many signs, so many symbols, so many wonderful gospel accounts of how it is that we can be strengthened in the midst of our own failure, in the midst of a very troubling world. Lord, I thank you for the other helper that you have sent to us now. I thank you for the other helper who transformed very weak and cowering disciples into courageous witnesses to the truth. And I thank you, Lord, that in the same way you send us, in the same life-giving, Holy Spirit-empowered way, you send us. And I thank you, Lord, for the promise of the many fish that we will catch and the abundance of this river of life. Lord, I pray that you would just work in the hearts of all who have been listening here. Lord, if there's ways in which their own inadequacies and their own failures are keeping them from confidence, I pray that the gift of your forgiveness would wash it away and they would be set free again because you have said that they are forgiven. You have ministered peace. I pray that you would use our time of confession especially for that. 
And I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that you would grow us from one grace to another and you would grow us from one strength to another, that you would grow in us especially, Lord, the fruit of love that overcomes all fear, all sin, and even death. And we pray this in your holy name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.